0: Edwards wrote this dissertation concerning the nature of true virtue because one of the things that was present within the Enlightenment writings was a consideration of what virtue is. and He engages many of these writings because they had set forth the purpose of the world as being one in which human virtue was developed, and and with the uh, consistent development of human virtue, this is that which made us well-pleasing to God. Edwards viewed this basically as... Uh, a subtle attack upon divine revelation, upon the reality that we're justified only by faith in Christ and by his imputed righteousness. And if we have any idea that our own virtue can commend us to God, then we have neither an understanding of our sin, of God's way of salvation, or of what true virtue is. And so he wants to take the Uh, rationalist understanding of virtue on its own ground. He wants to argue that indeed true virtue is at the heart of why God has created the world, but their understanding of true virtue is something that is totally misguided. And so he's trying to to redefine the basic agenda of the enlightenment uh, attack upon Christianity, uh, one issue at a time, and this issue of Virtue is one that was important uh, for virtually all the Enlightenment writers because they considered man basically as unfallen, and that the purpose of man was to develop a kind of virtue that would be good, first of all, for uh, society and for the well-being of other people, and would finally commend us uh, to God and eternal life. So Edwards uh, discusses this: the nature of true virtue. Uh, he <coughs> begins by showing his first. His first section is entitled "Showing the the essence of true virtue." The thing wherein the essence of true virtue consists. In this, <coughs> uh, he defines true virtue. He says A true virtue is the beauty of the qualities and exercises or virtue is the beauty of the qualities and exercises of the heart are those actions which proceed from them. So he wants to make a distinction between what is true virtue and what is apparent virtue. There can be apparent virtue on the outside. The world cannot exist without apparent virtue. These are not things that are true virtue, but honesty. People will be honest because they know that they will get along better in their business dealings if they're honest. Uh, They will be kind to people because they know that people will show up and will buy from them if they are kind to them. And these things have the appearance of virtue and people respond to virtue in a positive way, but they do not constitute true virtue. But God has so designed the world that intrinsically we all understand that virtue is one of the things that causes us to, uh, get along amicably with other people and so we seek to mimic it even though in our hearts we're not really pursuing true virtue. Then he makes a distinction <clears throat> not only between true virtue and apparent virtue but between what he calls particular beauty and general beauty. There are some things that have a beauty that are in, and, in, in themselves appear to be beautiful but they may be opposite to uh, general beauty. For example, if there are thieves uh, or pirates on a boat who have robbed three or four ships and sunk them, uh, and they have all of this uh, loot that they have taken, and among themselves, they share and share alike, and they make sure that no one uh, misses out on his part of the loot that they have taken, if you isolate that simply to itself and you see people sharing and concerned about others and not wanting to be dishonest in their dealing with others, this seems to be a particular virtue. But the general picture of it, of course, is these are people that are worthy of being uh, hung. And uh, it is a very ugly thing that they are being, acting so virtuous over material that, that they have stolen from others at the cost of their lives. And so these, this relationship between true and apparent virtue and what he calls particular and general beauty are related to each other in that way. So after more discussion then, he says, <coughs> so, so virtue, uh, true virtue, is, uh, consists essentially in what he calls benevolence toward being in general. This is not benevolence to particular things apart from the general. It is not something that is complacence toward being in general, though this will become involved later, but it is benevolence toward being in general. We have to consider the whole of being, the entirety of being. And benevolence toward it means that it is something that arises out of our will. Complacence, or complacent love, or complacence toward something is a good attitude toward a thing, treating a thing in a, in an amicable way because we receive benefit from it, because it pleases us. Uh, That is is complacent love or complacence. Uh, Benevolence is something in which we have an amicable uh, attitude towards something because it arises out of our own desire to be amicable. It arises out of our own desire to be kind. And so true virtue is this benevolence. It's benevolence toward being in general. The second object of a virtuous propensity of heart, not just being in general, but benevolent being. Since virtue, true virtue, is benevolence toward being in general, when we find another being that is benevolent, then that being takes the largest part of our own benevolence. And in fact, that is the point at which eventually benevolence becomes complacence in a virtuous way another being which shares the same benevolence toward being in general now he he argues that this necessarily arises from pure benevolence to being in general uh, it is not impercept. it is not uh, benevolence toward being in general is it does not lack perception it does not lack a critical acumen uh, and benevolence toward being in general affirms and is is increased by another being that we, see ha- that, ha- that we see has benevolence toward being in general, that encourages our own benevolence toward being uh, in, in general. Even as we see there in, in Philippians uh, two, the, uh, the benevolence that Christ showed toward us as sinners is something that should increase our desire to live in the way that he lives. And so the same way as benevolence toward being in general is a virtue we should have if we find another being that has benevolence toward being in general that increases our own uh, desire to act in such a way and so that being in a sense receives more of our own benevolence. He says then that true moral or spiritual beauty consists in this secondary ground that is the secondary ground of 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 having special benevolence toward another being that has benevolence toward being in general. And it is this secondary ground that begins to become complacent love. On this account, he says, these acts are beautiful. They imply consent and union with being in general. Spiritual beauty is the primary ground of complacence. Love to oneself in particular might be a secondary ground of complacence, but this is the primary objective foundation of it, that is a being that has benevolence toward being in general. So we move from benevolence toward being in general, of a, a, an amicable re, uh, attitude toward all things that have being simply because of the uh, d- desire of our own hearts for the well-being of all things. We find another being that has a uh, benevolence toward being in general. This increases our own capacity for that, and then this generates a, a love for that thing that uh, creates this, uh, we- this, this greater sense of well-being in ourselves. That then becomes what is called complacence. Uh, we benefit from that, but we benefit from it in a virtuous way it is not something in which our ourselves are the primary concern but it is that a uh, law for a thing in which we find beauty in itself because it has benevolence toward being in general so just those two things keep those two ideas in mind benevolence and complacence true virtue is benevolence toward being in general uh complacence then arises out of finding and having affection for another being that has benevolence toward being in general. So the spiritual beauty, the spiritual beauty of another being that has a benevolence toward being in general is the primary ground of complacence. The primary objective foundation, that is a being that has benevolence toward being in general. Now the degree of amiableness, the degree of our sense of an amicable relationship toward this being is compounded by the quantity of that being and the quantity of the benevolence. And so it's the difference if you could discover that there is a bug that has benevolence toward being in general, uh, you would approve that and you would have some degree of complacence toward that. But if you find a person uh, an actual human being made in the image of God that has benevolence toward being in general, then the quantity of being and, the, and the, the quality of the being of that particular thing increases the benevolence and increases the complacence that you would have toward that being. But if a being has all of being uh, and is the one who, has, who is the origin of all true benevolence, then that is the being that has demands the most of our own benevolence and the most of our complacence. And so very early, uh, Jonathan Edwards sets the standard and you, you can see that he's driving toward the idea that benevolence toward being in general, first of all, has God as its object. What he's trying to, to prove here is the validity of the command that true virtue consists in loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so he's beginning this, this philosophical journey uh, toward that by, uh, by arguing and, and within each of these points, he argues philosophically showing the absurdity of, of other viewpoints and, and defending his definition of what benevolence is and what complacence is and why true virtue is benevolence toward being in general, but then how this leads into uh, complacence and how complacence is both benevolence and complacence are increased uh, in light of the, the kind of being it is and the quantity of being Uh, that this object of our affection actually has. (coughs) So none can relish this beauty, he says, that does not have that temper in himself. And so if we find a being that has benevolence toward being in general, and benevolence toward being in general is the foundation of virtue, and it is, it, it is finding that in another being that allows our love to go out toward them, that that means that there is intrinsic to us uh, a, uh, an, an approval of those ideas of both benevolence and complacence, but if we do not have that temper in ourselves, then that being that has benevolence toward being in general will not be attractive to us. And so this is the uh, He begins to to move this toward those definitions of virtue that do not set forth a principle by which God becomes the final and and most um, uh, clearly uh, uh, rational object of our benevolence. And these systems, these enlightenment systems of virtue did not. And so he's, at the same time that he's arguing philosophically, he is showing how there is an inadequacy and even a moral perversity in the arguments that stop short of saying God should be the final source of our affections. So none can relish this particular kind of beauty, that is, benevolence toward being in general, uh, and this kind of beauty that has such an infinite quantity of being. None can relish this that did not have that temper in himself. Now, the second major portion. That's his demonstration of what the the essence of true virtue, uh, wherein the essence of true virtue consists, benevolence toward being in general. The second part, he shows how that love, wherein true virtue consists, respects the divine being and created things. Uh, In this, he simply affirms in the very first part, that true virtue must chiefly consist in love to God. It chiefly consists in love to God because if benevolence toward being in general is true virtue, then our love for God must be first and primary because God is the one, is the single most uh, prominent being that has benevolence toward being in general. He has the greatest of being just from the standpoint of his infinite existence, from the standpoint of his, uh, his eminence. Everything about him, all being consists in him, in him we live and move and have our being. And of course his argument that God is the only thing that genuine, genuinely and truly has being, he's the only one that is self-existent means that if we have benevolence toward being in general, that he will be the the primary object of our benevolence. But then, if we look at benevolence toward being in general as becoming also complacence, we find in that being that has the most of being, we find him to be a virtuous being, we find that he has benevolence toward being in general. Uh, Then this is the, the second reason why our love for God must be primary. Not only a benevolence toward God, but a complacence toward him because he is worthy of love. He does not have just being, but he has virtuous being. Therefore, God is infinitely the appropriate object of both benevolence and complacence. Now, he <clears throat> looks at this and he says, is there anything that we can add to God by this? Is, is there any way that our approval of God uh, blesses him uh, in a sense that finite beings can be blessed by the approval that other people put on them? And he says, well, no, that is not the case, but there are th- certain things that, are, that naturally follow from understanding that true virtue consists in benevolence and complacence toward this greatest and best of all beings. We cannot add to his happiness, but we can look at him and realize that he is infinitely happy and we can rejoice in his happiness. We have no ability to add to his happiness because he is perfectly happy and blessed uh, in himself, but we as creatures can participate in that by rejoicing in his happiness. We cannot add to his glory because he has infinite glory in himself, but we can rejoice in his glory and we can let our lives be such as seek to reflect and promote his glory by praising him and by setting him forth as the the most excellent of all being before other people. So we can promote his glory, we cannot add to his glory. And if he is considered at all in one's understanding of virtue, then he must be the chief consideration. Once you introduce God into the equation, if he is to be considered at all, then because he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, then he has to be the chief consideration. So true virtue immediately drives us to see that if we do not regard God as central to the whole understanding of virtue, we have completely missed the point of what virtue is. He is in every way to be the supreme object of our benevolence because of the the, uh, infinite nature of his being and because of the kind of his being, he is the infinite object of our complacence. Now, benevolence toward any other being primarily is nothing short of self-love. No matter how expanded it is, no matter how it, virtuous it seems to be, if we try to develop spheres of virtue, and spheres of activity that we consider to be virtuous, and yet they do not include the glory of God in it, they do not include our benevolence toward God and our complacence toward him, if they do not include our enjoying his happiness and the promotion of his glory, then this is simply a A a kind of self love. He explains that by talking about different spheres of concern. It is very obvious that a person is concerned only about himself, and if he regards all other people as beneath him and unworthy of his attention, and he is always uh, seeking to advance his own well-being and his own joy and his own wealth at the expense of others, then everyone recognizes that this is not a virtuous person and this is not a person that you want to be around. This is someone that you want to avoid. This is someone you would reprobate. This is someone you, uh, you think is, is hostile to all good things because he is totally self-centered. Anyone can see that. But if a person is concerned about his family and he is good to his family and he promotes the well-being of his family and the safety of his family, we look at that and say that has some degree of virtue uh, in it. Uh, Because he is not simply concerned about himself, he acts in a sacrificial way at times toward his children and toward his wife and so forth, but it is still in one sense, as Edwards would call it, a private sphere. It is just less obviously self-centered. He is trying to create a sphere in which uh, he functions well and he's thought he's thought well of by by others and he creates a comfort zone for himself by making sure that his particular family is safe and then there can be perhaps a uh, a governor of a of a state who governs the state well and he seeks to institute laws and seeks to institute business in such a way as, as there is prosperity within the state but he has little concern about other states or about people outside the jurisdiction of his own, of his own government. Well, this, this has the appearance, a bigger appearance of being uh, virtuous because of the number of people that benefit from it, but it is still a, sp- a private sphere. And so on it goes, and he, he expands this even into the whole world. If there were a person who could rule the world, uh, this world in and of itself, considered only by, as a created order, only by the people in it, he governs it in a virtuous way, so everyone is, has an opportunity to, to achieve prosperity. We would look upon this as a person who is a wise person and a virtuous person because he has the well-being of other people in his mind, but it is still a created thing. It's within the created order. It ignores the reality of all other being, which, is, which consists of that being who, or the being who has the greatest amount of being and the only one who has self-existence. So it is still a a private sphere. And as he drives this point by point, he says that all of these things, no matter how expanded the sphere, if it omits that being that has the greatest amount of being, it is still a private sphere, and it is just a species of self-love. We see it very clearly when when a person isolates himself in that way. It is not seen as clearly if a person's apparent virtue includes the entire world, But if he still is excluding the greatest amount of being, it is simply a type of self-love. It establishes a private sphere as its ultimate good, and thus it is against true benevolence and is in opposition to true virtue. Well, then he moves a step further, and he says that God's virtue if we're going to imitate the virtue of God, God's virtue consists primarily of love to himself. Now that, in any other being, of course, would not be virtuous because any other being does not have the same amount of being that God has and the same amount, which in God is infinite, of of virtue. And so it is only right that, that God's Virtue consists of love to himself. There's mutual love and friendship, which subsists eternally and necessarily between the several persons of the Godhead. There's a <clears throat> he says this on page 257 of your Text well two two fifty six, the bottom he says, From these things I think it is manifest that no affection, limited to any private system, not dependent on nor subordinate to being in general, can be of the nature of true virtue. And this, whatever the private system be, let it be more or less extensive, consisting of a greater or smaller number of individuals, so long as it contains an infinitely little part of universal existence and so bears no proportion to the great all-comprehending system, and consequently that no affection whatsoever to any creature or any system of created being which is not dependent upon nor subordinate to a propensity of union to the heart of God, the supreme and infinite being, can be of the nature of true virtue. From hence, also it is evident that the divine virtue, or the virtue of the divine mind, must consist primarily in love to himself or in the mutual love and friendship which subsists eternally and necessarily between the several persons in the Godhead or that infinitely strong propensity there is in these divine persons one to another. There is no need of multiplying words to prove that it must be thus on a supposition that virtue in its most essential nature consists in benevolent affection or propensity of heart towards being in general, and so flowing out to particular beings in a greater or lesser degree according to the measure of existence and beauty which they possess of it. It will also follow from foregoing things that God's goodness and love to created beings is derived from and subordinate to his love to himself. And of course, in God, this is not a the kind of thing that we would look upon as a mere creature, but this is that which is rational. It is that which is necessary because he is the greatest and best of beings and all of his virtues are infinite in their uh, perfections and it is that which he must approve of and he has approved of it for uh, eternity. Love to all other beings is subordinate to and derived from love to himself. Virtuous love of one created thing to another consists in seeking the proper end of everything. That is the manifestation of the glory of God. So we can, we can see here that this, uh, his discussing the nature of true virtue becomes foundational for his discussion of the end for which God created the world. That is for the manifestation of his own glory. God could create it to, to no other end because True virtue consists in love to being in general god is the only one that has true love to being in general he is being in general he has infinite love for himself uh, because of his infinite perfections and therefore he has created the world as a manifestation of his glory and and we act virtuously not when we seek the well-being of finite creatures in and of themselves so that it's limited to a private sphere but only when we seek to promote the glory of god among them. And when we do things that we do for the glory of God, as as Paul said, whether you eat, drink, or whatsoever you do, uh, do it to the glory of God. So the glory of God is the chief end uh, in everything. If something does not have the glory of God as its chief end, then it is a defective system. Now, he has set this forth, and he has... uh, argued it from what he thinks and what seems to me is a a rational uh, standpoint using many of the the definitions that Enlightenment thinkers set forth, the ideas of virtue, and he has shown that they all fall short. And in the meantime, he has also developed a biblical doctrine of virtue and of the glory of God, and he has defined uh, what the purpose of all uh, creatures is. Then he has a discussion uh, concerning secondary and inferior kinds of beauty. And he says these secondary beauties are erroneously confounded with real virtue. So he has an expansion here of what it is like to, to have a private sphere. And how a private sphere can appear to be something that is virtuous, it, it can appear to be something that is that is lovely, and yet uh, it in the end it is uh, defective because it fails in its understanding that God should be the primary object of all of our affections. But these things appear to be beautiful because they they mimic virtue, they mimic true virtue in some way. The secondary beauty consists in a mutual consent, an agreement of different things in form, manner, quantity, and visible end or design. And Edward makes much of, of symmetry, of proportion, of harmony, of regularity, of uniformity, as characteristic of, of beauty. And within private spheres, you can see the development of these kinds of things. And he has, a, he has uh, some, of his, um, some of his miscellanies uh, have to do with, with beauty. And he talks about the relationship of proportion and symmetry and how proportion and symmetry can become more and more complex. And the more complex it is, the more beautiful it is. But, in very, very limited spheres. There are certain elements of it that are, uh, that are beautiful. If you want to draw a face, if you, put, you know, want to put uh, two eyes and you put a nose semi- symmetrically proportioned to where it's supposed to be and a mouth where it's supposed to be and in a general form uh, to the face, you look at it and it, it's okay. Then you can draw one that has an eye up here and an eye down here and a mouth uh, going backwards uh, over here, and the, the nose stuck up in the forehead, and all of a sudden you realize that's, uh, that's kind of clever, but it's not beautiful because there's no proportion to it. And so, but the more, the larger thing is, and the more complex the proportion, but still discernible, uh, then the greater beauty that it has. And so he begins to talk about the universe and the proportions of the universe, and how the universe in itself is a reflection of the kind of symmetry and proportion that God approves uh, and then if we extend that in an infinite way, we understand how great things that are very complex in their total arrangement, uh, if there is overall this kind of symmetry and proportion and interdependence of them, then we, we consider it something that is beautiful, and God is that way to an infinite degree. And so he, he calls uh, these uh, this uh, beauty, he tells, talks about cordial, a, a beauty that is cordial and a beauty that is natural. A cordial beauty is primary, natural beauty is secondary. And so observations of secondary beauty, which is the uh, physical beauty, the beauty that is uh, pleasing to us in a natural way. Secondary beauty is grateful to men as a law of nature, as an instinct, not that wherein beauty fundamentally, lies. And you can look at like music, the physics of music, uh, the, the physics of art, and all these kinds of things is having a, a natural loveliness and a natural beauty to them, and they're pleasing to us when we understand, when, uh, immediately when we hear them, uh, because that is the, the, the sensory part of it, and then even more to understand the physics behind it and how things appear to be beautiful because of the physical arrangement and how they follow certain laws. But well, this, this is a kind of beauty, but it's what he calls natural or secondary beauty. Secondary beauty is enjoyed more in greater in more important things uh, than in lesser and trivial things. And so uh, you may have secondary beauty in the way a piece of food tastes, and it's good for a while, and you like it, and it's uh, has the right blend of spices and so forth. That is something that we consider beautiful. Uh, but then if there were something that uh, were much uh, gr- greater than that in the accomplishment of, uh, that a child has in playing in a recital and does a perfect uh, rendition of Rhapsody in Blue, uh, that is still secondary beauty, but it has something that's more lasting. It's something that has uh, a greater appeal to the, to the mentality than the immediate appeal to the taste buds. And so that kind of secondary beauty has a, a greater sense of, of pleasure uh, in it. Also requisite is some relation or connection of the things thus agreeing one with another. And so he looks at secondary beauty, he talks about beauty of the social order, the beauty of human wisdom and the beauty of justice in a society. And all of these things can be more and more complex, more and more expansive, but. If in an isolated sphere, they simply, their secondary beauty, their natural beauty, the approval of such secondary beauty, considered simply and by itself, has nothing of the nature of true virtue. But again, it it mimics true virtue because of the principles according to which it operates that are are, uh, necessarily pleasing to people who are made in the image of God. Then he has a section of dealing with self-love and its various influences to cause love to others. We can appear to love others because of self-love. And he gives several different examples of that. He gives two understandings of the concept of self-love. One is a a man's love of his own happiness. Uh, then self-love, of course, can be with respect to his private interest. He loves to be loved. He hates to be hated. Sometimes the disapproval of men is hated more than death. What would we feel if we were universally hated and despised? We've heard of people who were involved in scandals of when the Enron uh, revelation came about the scandal of, of, of uh money and embezzlement of money. There was at least one person that committed suicide because he realized he was going to be hated and despised by people because of his dishonesty, and it, 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 he preferred death uh, to the uh, self-abnegation of living among people who suspected him and knew of his, his dishonesty. He has a, a Arguments, there, 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 there were people who set forth the idea that um, both gratitude and, and anger arise from a moral sense, anger about certain things, gratitude for certain things. And Edwards discusses this in detail. And he says, gratitude is not necessarily a point of, of virtue. We are, we are grateful to those who comply with the inclinations of our self-love And any moral sense of anger and gratitude arises from the sense of desert, which is the same as justice arising from a sense of secondary beauty. In reality, anger is counter to benevolence. Gratitude can be virtuous, but also can be a species of self-love. Our love for our near relations, their esteem of us, our vested interest in them can appear to be virtuous, and yet it's simply a species of self-love. And so he he expands this idea of self-love that he's already dealt with, but he's dealing specifically with enlightenment thought that make gratitude and anger in certain situations a a manifestation of virtue, and Edwards is demonstrating how that when it is isolated to a specific sphere, it always is really a manifestation of self-love. Then he deals with the issue of natural conscience and the moral sense, a disposition in man to be uneasy in a conscientious, in a consciousness of being inconsistent with himself and as it were against himself in his own actions. So conscience can operate in a way that is simply a species of self-love. He will appear to be to others inconsistent with himself. Conscience may approve or disapprove of actions based on how we would feel if such and such things were done to us. To dislike or like a thing because it is either a contradiction or a union, of a, or a union with ourselves is quite another thing. Uh, that is, to like or dislike because we are united with being in general. Primary beauty of true virtue and of the odiousness of sin. This is private virtue versus public virtue, a natural principle versus a divine principle. Uh, this disposition uh, can be mimicked as self-love, but it is similar to those things that have to do with, with, uh, some, uh, with displeasure toward sin and pleasure toward those who love God and are consistent with His revealed will. There are two things that operate in natural conscience that appear to be virtue, virtuous, in that disposition to approve or uh, or disapprove the moral treatment which passes between us and others from a determination of the mind to be easy or uneasy in a consciousness of our being consistent or inconsistent with ourselves. So natural conscience can operate in in relationship to others and appear to be a virtuous thing, but it really has to do with our, our perception of our ourselves as being consistent or inconsistent. I think all of, all of you have experienced that. I know i experience experienced it many times. I begin to, uh, when I'm considering a particular course of action, whether to do something or not to do something, one of the first things that comes into my mind, will, will, this, will this appear to be inconsistent with principles that I've enunciated in the past? My first impulse, many times, is, is not whether it's right or wrong, considered in the glory of God, no matter what it costs me, but whether or not I appear to be inconsistent and whether I offend others in doing uh, what, uh, what I'm doing. And so that, uh, Edwards' description of that was very uh, li- gripping uh, to me in uh, realizing how we need to consider long and hard our, our motivations about why we take certain actions and make public stances. A second thing he says about natural conscience is the sense of desert which was before spoken of. Uh, natural conscience may even approve of love to God and love to being in general, but not taste its primary and essential being. And the full manifestation is at the judgment, as far as Roman, in, in, as stated in Romans 3:19. He discusses then of particular inst- instincts of nature which may resemble, of virtue. He, he talks about natural affection. He talks about pity that we can have within certain fears. These these are these things in and of themselves are part of true virtue, but they can be manifest in a private sphere in a way that is not true virtue. And people, there were enlightenment thinkers that talked about the, the uh, expressions of natural affection, the expressions of pity toward those who are in misery uh, as of the nature of true virtue. He gives reasons why these things have been mistaken for true virtue. They belong to the general nature of virtue, but self-love is not mistaken for this, as he's already demonstrated. Some resemble virtue both in the primary ground, that is benevolence, and the secondary ground, that is complacence, approbation of something that appears to be virtuous. They have negative moral goodness, that is the absence of true moral evil, In them, and so they're considered to be virtuous because they avoid uh, uh, moral uh, turpitude. And they have the same effect of true virtue that is, they create order, they create benevolence uh, toward other finite beings, they restrain vice. And Edwards argues that God himself has established this as a means by which society will prosper. To the degree that it mimics true virtue, society will prosper and, and this will be uh, what we call a good for, the, for human flourishing. Well, the, the last section, section 8, in what respects virtue or moral good is founded in sentiment which is uh, another enlightenment argument. It's founded in sentiment and how far it is founded in the reason and nature of things. Uh, He believes that it is in both, that that sentiment is something that can do, is is the internal propensity we have in the concept of sentiment, that is the immediate sense of the beautiful given by God, he argues for, for realism, that this is something that is given us. There's the medieval... Concepts of reality. One was realism, which would be set forth by someone like Anselm. And another would be nominalism, that would be set forth by someone like William of Ockham. A nominalism just says that virtues do not have any existence in and of themselves; they do not have an absolute standard, but they're merely names that we give to things. Whereas realism says these are real; that there are the very order of things says that there is an uh, uh, an an actual. Uh, ideal in virtue of love and uh, a virtue of patience and a virtue of goodness. These have real existence and that, that we have those things to the degree that we actually copy and we reflect those things that are, that are present uh, in, in reality. And he says that, that sentiment, sometimes sentiment can be mere uh, emotionalism, but sentiment is that, uh, that, that, that kind of of uh, guard that God has placed within us that in our fallen nature we we go against. This is why our conscience is said to be be seared. Uh, It is said that though we know those that do such things are worthy of the judgment of God, nevertheless they not only do them, but they have pleasure in those that do them. And so Paul assumes that there is a, a real virtue that is present in the sentiment, present in the conscience of people, but our fallenness always makes us violate it for the good of a private sphere, not for the glory of God. And so he says that God gives what is in agreement with being in general. God gives what is in accord with his own temper and nature. Only in this way can creatures agree with each other, and only in this way can they love their own uh, happiness, because God loves his own happiness. And so there is this aspect of, of sentiment that is, uh, in which true virtue can be grounded. and So this is what is, would be later called uh, a natural ability. There is within our nature those things that have to do with sentiment in which certain aspects of virtue could be set forth, but there is a moral inability to express them in the way in which they exist in absolute form because of the perversity of heart. But they, they do exist in sentiment. Also, they exist in the moral sense. The moral sense must agree with the nature of things, must approve the uniformity and natural agreement of things, that there must be good, evil, right, and wrong, that these are not altogether unfixed and arbitrary use of words. And in the end, all of this shows that because of sentiment, because of the moral sense, that true virtue is founded in the, the reason and nature of things. Uh, and he <coughs> argues that that is something that is put in the world only by uh, the created order. God cannot create something that does not reflect uh, his, uh, his being and does not reflect his own virtue. And that is uh, the reason that uh, everyone should know from the things that exist and from their own conscience something of the character and the, the nature of God. But then his conclusion, of course, is that in spite of all these counterfeits, but in, in, in one way because of the witness of all of these counterfeits, is what we consider good and how order comes from all these counterfeits that uh, in the final analysis, true virtue is only founded in benevolence toward being in general, which then implies, after reasoning, that true virtue is loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and virtuous action is doing all to the glory of God and seeking to have uh, others come to know and rejoice in the happiness of God. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you have been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.